Coming up on this week's show, a new Ron Gilbert Monkey Island game is coming. Play classic PlayStation games on your PlayStation 5. And we chat to the angry video game nerd, James Rolfe. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our amazing mates at Bitmap Books. Now, something you need to check out from them that comes out again next month, reprints are due in May, Metal Slug, The Ultimate History. If you're a fan of that series, it is a must-read. Packed full of conceptual artwork, behind-the-scenes info, and exclusive interviews. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 321, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another nostalgia-filled episode, taking you behind the scenes on the world of classic video games, of course, bringing you up to speed on all the big stories in retro gaming and tech over the last seven days, and bringing you an exclusive guest on the show as well. Now, I think we might need to just calm Joe down a little bit before we get our guest on this week. <laughs> Hold me back. <laughs> we, we, we finally pinned him down. We finally got him. The man, the legend, James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd. The thing is with James Rolfe is he, he already talks a lot about like behind the scenes and how he got into it and stuff. So we just kind of spoke mainly about his memories, didn't we? And it was like, mm. it was really chill. And it was like just talking to a mate because of, I don't know about you guys, but I've been watching AVGN literally for 15 years. Like, yeah, I, I I couldn't do it because he burnt a CD32. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been from the beginning of YouTube. I was watching AVGN, yeah. and he he was the first real kind of blow up channel, wasn't he? And mm, yeah, he really did. exposed me to the odd odd titles that uh, were out there. It's a weird one. So I was like 17. It was like 2006, 2007. And I started watching him. And it was because of him I got into going to car boots and rebuying like Mega Drive games and Master System games and stuff. So for me, it was just like such a nostalgia trip and it was so awesome. And literally, Dan, you've been talking to him for about five years, haven't you? Like, yeah, and he, off and on emailing every six months <laughs> yeah. or so. And he always responds. He always does respond yeah. and you always have a back. He's and a busy guy though. He always has a back and forth with you, but he's always very apologetic. But this time he was just like, yeah, you know what, let's do it. And, you know, we, we got a decent, he, he said he didn't have long, but we got a decent amount of time out of him. Your and, persistence uh, paid off, Dan. There you go. Yeah, man. So it was really, really fun. So, yeah, I can't wait to listen back to it. Well, it is your right. I mean, you know, you kind of think about that, um, you know, that original generation mm. of retro gaming YouTubers and not many of them have, you know, lasted the course like James has. Yeah. You know, a lot of them kind of, you know, you got to like five years after they started by like 2010, 2011. A lot of them kind of given up, haven't they? Or the channels are changing to something else. Yeah. But James, I mean, he's been there. It must be coming up on, uh, God, it must be nearly 20 years since he did that first episode in around 2004, was I think, 2004, wasn't it? So 2004, I believe. I don't, yeah. You know, I mean, he's, we, we talk about it on the interview and stuff, but yeah, 2004, he kind of first did the the Angry Video Game, uh, the Angry Nintendo Game Nerd uh, episodes, which kind of started off at him at university, kind of passing him around to his friends on VHS before mm. they then got uploaded onto YouTube. And, and like... Um, Hasn't he got like a movie and a, and a video game as well? I think I've actually got the AVGM video game on my Wii U. Yeah, which yeah is he's got mad. he's got about three games, I think, and then he's got the movie, like you say, which he directed and everything. And like you know, it was that was kind of like funny enough. That was like my first ever 
crowd like the first time for time I saw something crowdfunded as well because he he got that I don't think he did it on Kickstarter or anything he just did his own kind of crowdfunding for am, it am I right in thinking he did like location videos of where movies were shot as well so yeah, uh, yeah, really early on I remember like Back to the Future and stuff yeah, like that yeah he, he used to do videos for Spike.com kind of like in the late 2000s you know like 2008 2009 and he used to do a lot of movie reviews but then he'd also do a lot of like like you say he'd go to all the rocky locations and you know, the Back to the Future locations and stuff like that. So, you know, he doesn't just do video games. He does a lot like um, Monster Madness and always talks about films and stuff. So he was always one of my go-to YouTubers. You know, I used to, I think they used to come out on Wednesdays and I used to always be excited to watch the new AVGN. So like I say, real, real nostalgia trip for me. And I think he did a lot as well to kind of educate people that maybe didn't have first-hand experience of not mm. only the games, but the systems as well. Oh, yeah. See, I mean, you know, growing up in like, you know, the 80s and 90s, we had a different view of gaming to what they had in America, you know, like home oh, computers. Yeah, he's very nice, isn't he? And uh, those yeah. kind of consoles. Even Atari yeah. stuff. Like, you know, I'd never played an Atari 5200 before I saw his video. And, yeah. You know, that came out in like 2008. And, you know, I wasn't familiar at all with that system. So I think he's done a lot to kind of, and also raise the prices on eBay as well. Probably. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're 100% right. He, his videos have completely educated me. Like, I, I'm, I would have a guess that I didn't know a Mega Drive was called a Genesis in America until uh, I saw yeah. AVGN. It's kind of um, yeah. like um, opening up the American market to the Europeans, which he probably yeah. didn't think he was doing at the time, but um, it did definitely kind of help. And mm. I can imagine he thought I, I was just doing it for kind of the American audience, but uh, just everybody was watching <laughs> yeah. that, you know. An absolute veteran of the uh, the YouTube scene and also, you know, retro gaming kind of content creation in general, I think. So James Rolfe, I mean, the amount of content creators we get on who's, you know, if you always ask any YouTuber we get on, who is your inspiration? James always gets a name check, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. So uh, really excited to talk to him. James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd, is going to be our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, um, we've got lots of news stories to get through. First of all, though, some breaking news at the time of recording this week's episode. And uh, I have to kind of not fangirl too much over this because uh, when Ravi sent me this link, I was actually shopping in Morrison's at the time. <laughs> you were like, um, looking what? on my phone. <laughs> I was trying to watch this trailer on my phone in the middle of Morrison's while, you know, the missus is like, pay attention, we're shopping. Uh, but this is Ron Gilbert is finally making a new Monkey Island game. Now, for Monkey Island fans, this is massive news. I mean, the last game that, you know, Ron did in the Monkey Island series was Monkey Island 2 back in 1992. So finally getting a new Ron game following on that story is just something we've wanted for like 30 years. Because I remember we've talked about this before and there was always that kind of assumption that it would never happen. And yeah. that I think the rights were with Disney yeah. or someone like that. So it was kind of like, oh, there's this amazing series, but it's been taken out of the hands of the original creator and he kind of can't get the rights back but um this announcement's come out and uh apparently he said on twitter that he's been working on it for two years already in secret yeah which um leads me to believe i mean there is a trailer that landed and it's very cryptic um we'll talk a bit about the graphics and stuff in it soon but the only thing that you kind of see in there is like a, a skeleton pirate playing a violin and then there's a there's murray the skull who i think was actually in um monkey island 3 that ron had nothing to do with which is quite a curious inclusion but i'll play you the little clip of the trailer and this is pretty much all we hear in the trailer ron gilbert told me he'd never make another monkey island unless and that is it <laughs> it's it's interesting because i thought like 
just seeing Monkey Island and his name associated together, I thought mm. it would be like a ripoff, like Gorilla Island or something, you know, when people don't get the rights <laughs> and they've got to kind of do something different. But yeah, he must have done a deal then and uh, kind of got it. So how many in the series are there, Dan? Because you're like a resident Monkey Island expert. Oh, God, there are a lot of them. I mean, obviously, you had the first two games that Ron made. And Monkey Island 2 was actually left on a, a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, if you've never played Monkey Island 2, spoilers here, spoilers here, skip forward 30 seconds. Uh, but we found out that, so you've got Guybrush Threepwood, who's the main character in Monkey Island who you play, yeah. and his arch nemesis, LeChuck, the ghost pirate. And he actually found out at the end of Monkey Island 2 that they were related. But that story arc was never spoken about again, really, in the series, as far as I can remember. So kind of, you know, we, we didn't really find out the conclusion of that. So I'm hoping with now Ron getting his hands on this game. I mean, there's not much information out about it. At the time of recording, this trailer literally landed, what, three hours ago, didn't it? So it's very new. Um, but from what I've read, the comments and stuff so far on the, the threads on Twitter, he's kind of going to pretend that the, the games after Monkey Island 2 didn't exist. Okay. So this is going to kind of be a follow-on to Monkey Island 2. But after that, we had, like, you know, Curse of Monkey Island, Escape of Monkey Island. There was, like, games on the PlayStation. We had the... Uh, there was a whole, like collection of games that came out around 10 years ago that I must admit I didn't really play much of. So there's been quite a few, but obviously none of them have been made by Ron Gilbert. Well, um, and then we got those, um, you know, the special editions, the remastered versions. Yeah, I remember out, them. Um, like, and, and, and yeah. were they any good? Yeah, they were really good, actually. And I think, you know, if, if anyone wants to kind of explore the original Monkey Island games today, that would be the way that I'd probably suggest that they try them because it makes them a lot more accessible. And obviously you've got, you know, more modern graphics in there and you get full voice acting. And probably for modern players, it's a it's a better way for them to experience the story than um, the old pixel graphic version. Well, talking of like the voice acting here, Dominic Amato uh, is, yeah. is going to return as the voice of Guybrush. And um, they've also got Dave Grossman on board as well as like the co-creator. So, um, yeah. you know, it's the original kind of crew there. It is. And... And, and I think, you know, obviously this is something the fans have wanted for a long time. I'm not sure quite how this has happened. So I remember there was that petition, wasn't there, to get the rights of Monkey Island back into Ron's hands. Do you remember that we talked about probably about four years ago now on the show? Um, and the fact that he's been working on this for two years either meant that petition was successful or he found a way to do it. Interestingly, though, in the trailer, if you watch it, it's got the, um, you know, you know, now Lucasfilm Games are called LucasArts, but it's got the old Lucasfilm yeah. logo. In yeah, there maybe well. there like, was that some program. deal going yeah. on with uh, getting George Lucas involved to talk to Disney and somehow get the rights back. Because, yeah, Lucasfilm Games as well, really interesting. Now let's talk about the graphics in it, because that is something that already over the last few hours I've seen a bit of a division. Some people think it looks really nice. Other people are like, well, they should have done it pixel style like the original two games. Oh, you've got to move on, haven't you? I think the series has moved on quite a lot and this looks nicely done and like it's a tiny little trailer. You never know. There could mm. This could zoom out to a whole world. This could be like, a, you know, different perspectives on it and stuff. Yeah, I, I quite like it. Yeah, graphically, it kind of looks like the Monkey Island remasters. Um, but obviously Ron did, you know, Thimble Wee Park, didn't he? That was kind of that original style. Yeah, yeah. But that was um, more kind of a tribute and a look back to the past. Yeah. This seems like return. You're going back to the... Same place and situation, but probably not a, a kind of as, as, as retro, maybe continuing the story on. And hopefully this might be the start of a whole load of series. You know, if this goes down well, then it might continue. Mm. And, you know, Monkey Island could be a staple for like new generations and new kids to explore. 
You know, I agree as well about the graphics. I think, you know, the original Monkey Island games, they always pushed the boundary of what the technology could do. And they always move forward with graphical trends. So it wouldn't be fitting to the series if it was retro themed, I wouldn't think, you know, because that game always was something that looked good for the hardware it was running on. Yeah. So it makes sense that it's kind of nice modern graphics. Though, interestingly, you know, because um, Pirates of the Caribbean, I've always thought is a total Monkey Island ripoff. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered if that's kind of why Disney never kind of put it out there much, you know, over the last few years. But it is quite interesting that now we're going to get like a, a big high profile new Monkey Island game that apparently is, uh, like you said, he's been working on it for two years. He kept it very secret, though, because actually he announced it on his blog on um, April Fool's Day. <laughs> and a lot of people thought it was a wind-up, even though Ron famously hates April Fool's pranks. And and, and kind of the humour in Monkey Island has always been really good. And like if they get the tone and the humour right, I can imagine them totally ripping into Pirates of the Caribbean. And, like, yeah. you know, it will be a, a parody of it. And, you know, ah. I can't wait. Like, there's Monkey Island jokes that people quote at me at events and stuff. You know, it's how appropriate it's like, you fight like a cat. Yeah, exactly. It's like legendary. You know. Yes, I mean, I've got memories of being a kid. You know, on my Amiga 500, my brother and I, you know, hooking it up to the big TV in the living room and uh, just being absolutely captivated by those games. You know, hours could fly by playing them. And actually, you now this is obviously pre the days of voice acting, so I still have to do all the voices for my little brother. Um, of all the pirates and everything when we're playing it, which I will not imitate right now. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, actually, come on, yeah. do some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's going to be, uh, yeah, going to be incredible. Have you ever played the Monkey Island games before, Joe? I don't think you're not quite a, a big point and click adventure game guy. I was, was going to say, I was kind of staying quiet there because I've never played them. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, there. you've put me on the spot. I've never played them, but maybe I should check out the remasters. Maybe I should give my opinion on them. Or even we could do it as an after hours, you know, where we pick games for each other before. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I should really check them out because a lot of them, like you say, they're on like Xbox One and stuff. And I think they might even be on Game Pass. I know Day of the Tentacle is, and I know that's a similar game. So, yeah, they definitely were. They might come off now, but yeah, they definitely yeah. were on Game Pass a while ago. I mean, I think they're only about four or five quid yeah. or something if you buy them. Um, but yeah, I just think, you know, this the, the, the games that I've played since then, I mean, I played, um, I think it's Escape from Account on the PlayStation 2. I actually played that through probably about two years ago, actually, for the first time in a long time. Really enjoyed that. And, you know, I enjoyed Curse of Monkey Island as well. Um, I played some of the, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Tales of Monkey Island. That was like the uh, the series that came out in the late 2000s. Mm. I did play a few of those. I kind of gave up on it, though, for some reason, which, you know, might be something I need to revisit. But having, having Ron back at the helm, he's like, you know, he's the heart and soul of the Monkey Island series. So I think this is going to be something really special. Um, yeah, so and, really excited. And new, this. new kind of systems, new audiences. Uh, mm. You know, it's it's 2022, and it's like it might bring a whole new generation to Monkey Island, and I think that's great. It's not just going to like die in the water. And I think Thimble Wee Park proved that he's still got that kind of same cutting humour as well. You know, oh, for really sure. Game, yeah. So there's going to be more of that in there, I'm sure. So no release date is yet. It just says 2022, but hopefully it won't be too long to wait. And if you want to check out the trailer, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, it is interesting to see that um, Sony are kind of looking to return to the uh, the retro libraries for their modern systems because it's something that really, I've got to say, on the PlayStation, it's always felt like a bit of an afterthought and something that Sony have never really felt all that bothered about compared to Xbox, you know, whereas Microsoft put a lot of time and effort into um, making original Xbox and Xbox 360 games playable on modern hardware. It's always felt a bit like something that Sony are not really that bothered about but there was that big announcement last week that they're bringing the um, it's at PlayStation Plus Premium, I believe it's called, which is going to be their kind of um, alternative to Game Pass, isn't it? Where they're going to be putting some uh, PlayStation 1 
and PlayStation 2 games on there at a cost. Yeah, so you can't kind of summarise it there and hit it on the head. So let's move on. Next let's story. move on. Next story. Let's do it. Let's do it. But yeah, in seriousness, um, I do agree with you. It's always been a bit of an afterthought. And there was, there's always these rumours like the PlayStation 4 is going to be backwards compatible. Oh, the PlayStation 5 is going to be backwards compatible because of obviously certain models of the PS3 were backwards compatible. Like some of them did PS1 and PS2 and some of them just did PS2, didn't they? And obviously, famously, the PlayStation 2 was completely backwards compatible with the PS1. But it's always, like you say, it's always been on the back burner, it feels like, in the last kind of like decade for PlayStation. Um, so, yeah, on the 30th of March, they announced the new PlayStation Plus subscription tiers, um, which we've spoke about, I think we spoke about it about this time last year, around a year ago, saying, you know, PlayStation were on about bringing out, you know, similar to Game Pass. Um, but as you say, they've kind of locked them behind the most expensive tier so you're going to get ps4 ps3 ps2 and ps1 games on this tier but it's going to be 17.99 a month in Ooh. dollars so 17.99 dollars a month or 50 dollars for three months or 120 dollars for a year so obviously it'll be a little bit cheaper for us british in pounds i imagine um, not normally much well yeah it'll work out the same it'll just be it'll be like 15 quid a month or something yeah yeah um but they've, there's no news at the point of us recording this on what games we're going to get or anything like that. And I'm, I mean, I have a PlayStation Four, but I literally just play The Last of Us and Bloodborne on it. Like they're the only games I've played for it. Um, I don't play it online or anything like that, so I'm not too sure how PlayStation Plus works at the moment. But I believe it's just like Xbox Live Gold, where you just yeah, get is, yeah. you just get like three or four free games a month, and then you can play online, can't you? Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. new premium is going to be like the Game Pass where you get all the free games, but there's, there's several versions of that premium, isn't there? And it's the top tier one where you get the essentially the backwards compatible retro games on it, isn't it? It's a bit like the Switch do, you yeah. know, if you play play the higher tier, you yes. can get the N64 and Mega Drive games on yeah, there as so, well. Yeah, which, um, so the Switch has the NES and the SNES games, which you get for paying three ninety nine a month, don't you? But then if you pay the, 20, yeah, the low one. if you pay the $20 a month, you then get the N64 and the Mega Drive. So interesting that playstation have done the same thing because xbox is just straight up you get everything yeah you know? and it's it's quite expensive so i've used stadia i've signed up for that i've used mm. um geforce now i've used quite a few of the services yeah on the you've, PC. you've been testing quite a few of them out for the last yeah few months, yeah streaming ones and this seems expensive i wonder if they're going to do a pc release of this as well so you know it can be used on other systems but um I'm looking here as well. You are getting quite a few consoles there. You're getting PS3, PS2, PS1, and PSP as well. Oh, so, yeah. You, uh, you know what? I didn't mention that. Yeah. So PSP, you know, that might be interesting. But it all depends how they're ported. I'm sure they'll do a good job of it. But it's, oh, It just depends how many yeah. as well, though. Yeah. I mean, the thing is with, with Xbox, you can literally put your old original Xbox C or DVD, wasn't it, into your Xbox Series X and then it will download the emulated rapid version of it straight onto your SSD. Yeah. So you can play it, you know, with your original disc. I imagine on this, though, it, Sony have never done anything like that before, really, have they? Even if you buy kind of PS2 games and stuff off the off the store, they're always kind of got to buy them again. You can never put your original discs be, in there and play what them. what third-party developers they've done a deal with to become yeah. part of this. You know, obviously they're going to have the Metal Gear Solid and all of that kind of stuff, but... It's going to be which companies have they got on board? Well, you say yeah. that they're Konami games, so oh yeah, Konami, I'm, I'm so. just I'm just thinking that because they were the exclusive. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I see what you're saying as well. 
you know, you might pay this premium, but then you only actually get two PlayStation games. Like you sat there hoping, oh, I hope I get the original Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 or, you know, Metal Gear Solid. But, you know, we just don't know at this point what we're going to get. But I'm sure like on Game Pass or Xbox, you don't have to sign up to see what's on there. You can have a look through the library yeah. and then you can decide whether you want to pay for it or not. If it hasn't, um, hasn't got pando- uh, Pandemonium, then I'm not going <laughs> to go on it. <laughs> I'm paying 50 quid a month for Pandemonium. <laughs> <laughs> That's my style. <laughs> you know, it, it is interesting. There's um, you know some quotes in this article on The Verge of um, Jim Ryan, you know, the PlayStation boss. Um, he was talking about um, an interview that he did back in 2017. Mm. He said the dabble then with backwards compatibility. And he said, you know, it's one of those features that a lot of people wanted, but don't talk, don't actually use it that much, which, you know, we, we've seen that with Xbox. I think it was something like, you know, less than 10% of people ever actually played any of the older games on the modern Xboxes. But it does seem to be a feature that a lot of people kind of say they want. And then he said he was at an event where he saw um, some old PS1, PS2 Gran Turismo games. And he said they looked ancient. And he was like, why would anyone ever want to play these now so that that was one of the reasons he, he kind of put out there for not ha- actually doing backwards compatibility before yeah i must say um, like you know the ps5 is an expensive console and then getting this on top of that being more expensive than games pass you would have thought that yeah. they would have c- tried to undercut it you know and maybe have the hardware expensive but I, this I'm, I'm, i mean with you just saying that then i'm i'm hoping just from what you've just said there it's just made me think well maybe it's going to be a huge library yeah, you know, like everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. I, I seriously doubt it. But, you know, if they suddenly turn around and go, here's 500 games yeah, across the yeah. PS1 to 3 and the PSP, you know, that would be unreal. And it would justify, you know, £15 a month or $17.99 a month. Um, here's Bubsy I mean, 3D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's <where> you go. <laughs> um, well, they are saying that apparently up to 340 games are going to be available on the premium. Oh, okay. It doesn't say how many of those are retro games. It doesn't say. That's a that's um, a pretty decent amount. Um, I haven't seen that. I don't know how many is on Xbox Game Pass, but it's a, it's a fair chunk. You know, you have to when you go through the list. There's a lot of games on there. I would I would say to say it's probably more than 100. And it, is it that like sign up once, download, and then not sign up again, and still have the ability to play them? That's no, a, no, yeah. no. I because uh, with Stadia, it was like you could play it, but at 1080p instead of 4K. So oh, you could, no, no. but you Xbox could still play it. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, they get deleted off your disc if you cancel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, they're not games that you're going to own forever. And I imagine, I think you get that often on Game Pass, don't you? You can play it while it's on there. Then it, it says this expires in a couple of yeah, months. Yeah, on Game Pass, it says, do you want to buy this game as well? Like yeah. next to it, like when you download it for free. Um, it says mm. like free with Game Pass or would you like to buy it for £20 kind of thing? And it's the same with the Xbox Live Gold. Which is like it's pretty like brutal, just, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. don't, if you download a game on Xbox Live Gold, and I, I'm assuming it's the same on the normal PlayStation Plus, if you then your subscription to Gold runs out, you then can't play those games, even if you've got them downloaded on your on your yeah. Xbox. So I imagine they would do the same with the PlayStation to stop people like Ravi just downloading them all and then cancelling it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's gonna crack it. <laughs> it. It's something we've talked about for years. It kind of, you know, mm. modern day consoles are kind of turning into more of a subscription service, aren't they? Yeah. You know, more like a Netflix kind of thing, which is inevitable, really. But I think if they are going to do that, this does kind of feel to me, though, that like Sony have kind of been forced into doing something they probably didn't really want to do because, yeah. you know, Xbox and Switch are doing you know, this focus on retro games as well. And it always felt like Sony just wanted to be like, right, this is the new thing. But now, you know, that through market forces, they're kind of being forced into doing the retro game. Well, well, at least you'll uh, have something to play on your PS5 now, Dan. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. true. Yeah, Ravi said that. On this this is announced. Yeah, <laughs> so, but that's the thing. I mean, for all of us who really care about our retro games, I think we just have the original systems lying around anyway. So it's not something I'm bothered about. But I can imagine, you know, for maybe someone who's a bit nostalgic and got rid of the PlayStation One, you know, twenty odd years ago, it might be a bit of a cool thing. So uh, another story that we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on. Now, what about this? This is quite a cool little game. I was playing for a few minutes. Sorry, lads. That's why I was a bit late to the recording this week because I was playing Pixel Pat on Intel's website. <laughs> I spotted this the, the other day. This was on April 1st, and it wasn't an April Fool's Day joke either. Um, but yeah, Intel Pixel Pat is a celebration of the first year of the C, the new CEO, Pat. Is it Gelsinger? Yeah, I think so. Um, and it was a, it's essentially a celebration of, of him being Intel's CEO for a year, uh, which I thought was quite an interesting move. I mean, I've never heard of the guy, but I'm not a big computer guy like you guys are. But the the premise of the game is is an 8-bit side-scroller, isn't it? Like where it constantly scrolls, similar to modern mobile games, and you click to jump and you're running through a chip factory, which I think is quite funny. (laughs) Um, And... You know, you can collect light bulbs, which give you little facts about Pat, you know, like, you know, how he started his career in 1981 and the different things that he's done for Intel over the years um, and how, like, you know, the reason for this factory that they've built is to kind of challenge uh, the chip shortage that we've had over the last couple of years and stuff like that, which, you know, I think I think is really interesting. But the article uh, on TechSpot, which I think is really funny, points out right at the bottom is maybe it's to cover up the fact that it was recently announced that he got paid $178 million last Ooh, year. Jesus. Not that the, right. not the company made that. That's how much he made. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd quit after a year. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, like, I'd quit after a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> lying on a beach if he's got any sense yeah, next month. Yeah, so, you know, which apparently was a 698% increase on Bob Swan's pay the previous year, who Jesus. was the... Uh, the CEO of Intel prior to that, and also 217 times more the average salary of an Intel employee. Well, I, I think so, it's interesting that people are kind of using these like little retro games to kind of, you know, promote something or make someone seem more human or something like this, yeah. like uh, make them more fun. Like I remember that JLo game that we covered ages yeah. ago, which is yeah, like yeah, yeah. Jenny going through the block collecting shoes. <laughs> collecting and it's shoes. Like, you know. What's the next one going to be? Mark Zuckerberg as a playable character in San Andreas oh, on the no, Oculus yeah. on the Oculus Rift. <laughs> to but, make um, him seem more human. Yeah, you know, this this makes me think like there's there's some young whippersnapper in the PR department. I know, let's make a, a video game of him. Yeah, people will love that. You know? <laughs> and they're probably all in these departments at the moment j-lo's and then the person got promoted to intel <laughs> yeah yeah you know. and you're not wrong and I, and I think you know that is potentially what it comes down to it is a bit of fun but it does probably come down to as well of trying to make these billionaire millionaire corporate people like you say more human and more which is weird because you're putting them in a, yeah, in a like yeah. mascot kind come on, of Come on, guys. Uh, form, I'm just yeah. like you. I'm in a video game. Aren't you guys in video games? <laughs> I go around collecting things and shooting just, enemies. Yeah. I've got a video game based on me that you can all play for free. Don't you guys? <laughs> I, I prefer Mario. He's more working class, isn't he? Yeah, He's a plumber. Yeah, you know, <laughs> 
that's the thing. I mean, Pat, he's been in the industry a long time. He's actually the guy, one of the main designers of the, the 486, mm. you know, back in the day. Um, and, he, you know, he's worked for, I think he was a VMware as well. He was a CEO there for many years. So he's got a big, you know, history yeah. in the industry as well. But I think, you know, you're, you're looking here, some people are taking this a bit too seriously. I think they're like, oh my God, this is so cringe. I think it's meant to be, though. I think you're right. It's meant to just be a bit of fun, isn't it? And mm. the fact that it does educate you, you know, uh, and the fact a, that we're talking about, about history it. that. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's done its job, I think. So yeah, it's a fun little so, game to yeah. play for like for, for 20, 20 seconds or so. <laughs> I find it fun. So uh, if you want to check that out, it, it's uh, available now to play in your browser. Are you feeling uh, the post-holiday blues yet, Joe? And are you back from your week away? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Today was my first <laughs> first day back at work and it was a bit a bit full on. Why, have you got some good news for me? Well, there's something to look forward to. I mean, Ravi's going away on holidays to make us all really jealous. He's off to America for a month. But I know you're going to be dialing in from your travels, Ravi, to join us for our next patrons hangout. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, That's going to be pretty interesting, isn't it? I don't know where I'm going to do it, what the connection is. I might might do it from Alcatraz. That would be funny. Well, we've got um, next week's show you're going to be... In your home studio for that. Then after that, yeah, we're kind of into the unknown because uh, Ravi's uh, going to all over in America. Where you going to San Francisco? You going to New York as well? Uh, yeah, like Silicon you? Valley. Uh, uh, yeah. Going to VCF as well. Um, uh, going all over the place. Yeah, it's going to be crazy, and I'm going to come back full of burgers and fries. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Ravi is going to. You're going to keep on doing the show even though you're on holiday. That is oh, commitment. Yeah. I think you've got to work as well, haven't you? Exactly. And you love doing this. doesn't feel like work, does it? We love doing this every week. So uh, we just want to say a huge thank you to uh, the people who enable us to keep doing the Retro Hour podcast each and every Friday. And that is our wonderful patrons. Now, actually, if you join us on Patreon at the moment, it is a really good time to get involved. Not only will you be able to join us for this month's Hangout and uh, get to see whatever exotic location that Ravi's in, because we do this every month, uh, once a month on a Sunday night, a couple of hours. We send the invite out. I mean, we generally get, I'd say, you know, 30, 40 people generally join us now. So it's a really good chat. Uh, we all just nerd out about all things, you know, retro gaming, technology, movies. We talk about music, all sorts of stuff. Uh, just a really chilled hangout. You can come and, you know, just watch if you don't want to take part. But it's always fun to see new people in there as well. And uh, we always like to see people's um, gaming collections and systems and stuff as well. Because they normally put us to shame, actually, don't they, the people on, on the hangouts? Oh, yeah, definitely. Some, some, of the, some of them are unreal. I'm just like, oh, I need a whole new house for that. So... But they're, they're, they are amazing to kind of gawk at and drool over. Yeah, so all patrons get invited to that. If you'd like to join us for this month, if you join us on Patreon now, you'll uh, see the details of that coming up soon. And you get to listen to, if you're a gold member or above, our exclusive patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, actually, listen back to the the latest one that we just released, all about retro handhelds. That was a really fun episode, actually. Just getting a lot of talk about, you know, our school days and playing, you know, Links and Game Boys and birthdays yeah, you know, and Christmases the, and going on holidays. The best part about it was talking about batteries <laughs> like just, yeah. just the memories of batteries and the hunt to try and get cheap ones yeah it really had a memories flooding back and you know it's it's not something we talk about that much on the show handouts actually and uh it was really good to do a full kind of it was nearly two hours wasn't it uh getting deep into handouts and I think maybe it's on our mind at the moment because we've all got holidays, you know, either coming up or just gone. That was always the thing for me, you know, playing handhelds mm. on even now, you know, 3DS and my Switch is always the thing that passes a long plane journey. So I think, you know, they're definitely a big part of that kind of coming into summer. You know, a lot of people will remember handheld memories from then. So uh, if you want to get access to our patrons exclusive podcast, and there is a lot, what, 22 episodes that you unlock. So you can listen to loads 
of After Hours episodes if you join us on Patreon. But really the main reason that you're doing it is just to keep the show coming out each and every Friday. You also get the normal show ad-free. We give you exclusive content each week as well. So if you'd like to sign up on Patreon, all the details are at theretrohour.com. And of course, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, which I still haven't got any music for. That's like three weeks on the trot now. I know. I'm yeah, slacking, aren't it's I? It's not good enough, that. <laughs> Hall of Fame! <laughs> maybe, I was thinking maybe Ravi could like sing something in the background. I'm going to have to compose some uh, Hall of Fame music. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week, let's give a huge thank you to our latest patrons, the fabulous Ian Lewis. Richard Frozenwell. Super Lit Mario. Cliff Garrett. And Rodrigo Borges who all join us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them, you'll find the details at theretrohour.com. Now, this is something that um, I didn't realise there was much of a need for this, but now I've uh, seen this little video that you put out um, to, on our messenger a bit earlier on today, Ravi. I've not seen this before. A universal keyboard for Ataris. Yeah, this is this is really cool, actually. I've, you know, I've always looked at the Atari keyboards and I thought, those slanted keys, oh my God, they're so sexy. And on the ST and the Falcon. Oh yeah, on the keys, ST and the yeah. Falcon. So this is a case um, that's kind of a universal Atari keyboard case and it, it's standard for the STF, the STFM, the STE and the Falcon keyboard. And then they can be used on the Atari Mega, the Mega STE, the TT. And also one thing that I used to massively drool over which was desktop converted Atari computers. I don't know if you've seen those. Is that where people put like the BST inside like a, a desktop case? Yeah, and then or even Falcons, and then there's like stuff like Radeon cards in there, oh, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, all yeah. kind of madness. But this this is actually going to be made free on a Thingverse, or it might have a charge with it, but um, it'll be STL files, so you'll be able to print it yourself. But it's been uh, created in resin, and this keyboard has some pretty amazing features so um it allows you to use usb and wireless mouses uh, which is a pretty good bonus uh, two joysticks can be plugged in at the same time as using the usb mouse um, it's got a recessed kind of usb and key uh, mouse ports at the bottom for easier access so do you remember with the ataris underneath You'd have to kind yeah. of plug them in underneath, and it was always a bit of a faff, wasn't it? To kind of, I've got one set up next to me right now, actually, and yeah, I've never liked that about the ST um, and the Falcon. I believe is the same, isn't it? You've got to lift it up, and the mouse—I don't know if you've ever seen one, Joe—but the mouse and joystick connector are literally underneath the machine. Oh, so you lift it up, and you've got to plug it in the bottom, which it always felt a bit. I'm odd looking at the video now, but yeah, I was—I didn't—I didn't know that about the originals. No, and uh, it's also um, means you can set the uh, kind of floppy led as well um uh, if you're using it with the desktop converter and um you can also use uh, some extra floppy lights and stuff and uh, it's got leds in there a power led and what what do you kind of think of this guys like it's got stereo speakers in there as well it's i was like, gonna say you missed out the speakers yeah it's, it's like a full powerhouse uh, this little device here and uh, i guess you can use all these little adapters in there as well and stuff um that seem to be made in the uh, Atari market. Can you hear that? I'm not an expert on Atari. <laughs> well, you know more about it than me. Well, I think as well, because like, I mean, obviously there were, you know, you mentioned stuff like the, you know, the TT and the Mega, which were kind of the desktop Ataris, you know, they were in like a separate case that housed the, um, the motherboard and the floppy drive, and then the keyboard was a separate thing. But I remember, you know, on those machines, the keyboards, 
they just looked a bit more like standard PC keyboards. They didn't have those, you know, those features you mentioned, like the the slanted function keys and stuff like that, which again, I mean, I've got to say, I don't find the, the Atari ST keyboard to be particularly comfortable to use. I find the keys a little bit mushy on it. Okay. You know, it, it always felt like a budget keyboard, but it's undeniable that it looks incredibly cool. And I think, you know, if... Uh, if you have got one of those desktop converted things, and there is something about you know that kind of takes a soul out of just plugging in a generic keyboard, isn't there? You know, like a PC keyboard into a retro machine. Yeah, you you so still have like the this, same feel because it'll be the same yeah. kind of keys in there. Basically, it's just rehoused into this kind of monster. And um, I don't know how rare they are to to get original keyboards and stuff like that um, uh, for the Atari, but like having this with usb and wireless mouse and stuff it's yeah. just a, a really good idea and and being able to print it yourself i can imagine you can use your own pigment and you can uh choose the kind of colors that you want and um customize it you know i can imagine this is when he does release the uh, stl vi- uh, files on thingiverse you know there'll be some really amazing kind of versions that will come out and uh crazy colors and all sorts i've got to say i mean you know 3d printing feels like it's come on a hell of a long way just in the last five years. You know, I'm seeing some really good quality 3D printed products now, whereas before you could always tell, couldn't you? They always had those kind of lines and stuff on the surfaces and they never look quite right. But I've, I think there's been some, you know, really good stuff coming out recently. Yeah, this was done in resin, yeah, it says. So it's like really beautifully uh, well done. But yeah, I've, I've even seen metal 3D printing, you know, uh, people 3D printing things in metal. So imagine a metal one of these. Ooh. Yeah, so we want to check out the video. I mean, there was like a little 10-minute overview of him um, using it on various Atari systems. I've got to say, I mean, looking at that, I mean, apart from the colour, which obviously this is a, a prototype version, I imagine, it looks like it could be like a a proper, genuine factory-made keyboard. Yeah, yeah, it, it looks yeah. really good, yeah. And a lot of thoughts, yeah. obviously, gone into this, so uh, check it out. Now, let's talk about something that we've talked about several times on the show, uh, one of our favourite topics, and that is what pains Nintendo are to the retro community sometimes, because I can't get my head around this one. This is another instance of Nintendo just being unreasonable to the retro community. They've actually taken down some scans of a 1996 Mario 64 guidebook. This is... It's just getting silly now. Like, I love the the headline on uh, Kotaku is literally... Nintendo takes some cool stuff off the internet, like get some cool yeah. stuff taken again. off the internet again for like the millionth time. So yeah, about a month ago, uh, a user uploaded a um, essentially a, a Japanese exclusive guidebook that came out in 1996 for Super Mario 64. So we never got this in the West and it's all written in Japanese as well. Um, so you, you'd think, oh, what's so interesting about a, an old guidebook in Japanese, but the really cool thing about this is this particular guidebook. I don't know if you guys have seen it because it's not in the article. So I, 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 I encourage you to go give it. <laughs> I a- imagine Kotaku don't want to chance. Yeah, it's it's some pirate bay now. <laughs> so go if you just go Google like Mario sixty four guidebook, it comes up. But essentially, what what this guidebook did is it it made three D models of every single level in the game out of like oh, wow. plasticine. That's the only way I can describe it, like, you know, like, like contours and stuff, you know, like you'd make in like geography class at school. Wow. Um, mm. And literally it's got like a, a, you know, isometric view of the levels with like mountainsides and fields and, you know, all the enemies on there made out of like, you know, pipe cleaners and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but it's really well done and it's really adorable. Um, and I would, I would love 
it if these models still existed somewhere. Um, so, you know, if you're listening to this, go have a Google of it and have a look at it. Like I say, the, the actual guidebook itself has been taken and taken down, but there's a few pictures embedded in some websites and stuff still, so you can... <laughs> for now. For now, so you can have a look at them. But yeah, this it was uploaded onto um, Comfort Food Video Games, and essentially they don't know why it was <laughs> it was taken down by by taking it down they've probably increased the interest in it yeah people exactly. to go oh I mean, this is I, great you know it, interesting you should say that because i actually saw the article to say that it had been uploaded like a month ago and i thought of putting it in our news but i just never did like i was like oh you know what it's it's not a big news story and here we are now it's become a bigger news story because nintendo have taken it down and Do now you reckon we want there's a guy that just sits in a room in Nintendo who's like, taking it down, taking Take it, it down. down, get rid of it. <laughs> well, what's what's interesting is it's come from Nintendo of America, not Nintendo of Japan. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it, it could it, 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 that might not have anything to do with it, but the guy who you know the guy who runs Comfort Food Video Games is saying it's just bizarre that it's Nintendo of America because they've why why are they concerned with a guidebook from Japan in 1996 and it's not like anybody's making any money off it because nobody was making any money off it on the website for it being embedded and uploaded on there. And nobody's... Nintendo can't possibly make any money from the guidebook from... You know, Unless 20- they were planning to kind of re-release it. I can't see. Yeah, I don't why. know. I think it's just like, Nintendo. We've just been working on that guidebook for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're bringing it out ourselves. But apparently this guidebook's really expensive to find on ebay or on like yahoo auctions from japan it is quite a sought after expensive guidebook but you can't even argue nintendo are taking it down because of it's so expensive to buy you know so we don't want it out there we want people to buy it because it's not like nintendo are making any money off it because it's the aftermarket it's not nintendo yeah, the, the, the only one is ebay traders aren't they yeah exactly so it's it's it, as always it's a very odd situation but the magazine itself the guidebook itself is so adorable <laughs> Well, it was on um, archive.org. That's where they uploaded it to. Mm. Um, and it said, you know, you read through that there's actually a quote in there from Comfort Food Video Games. And they were saying, yeah, archive.org got the usual standard takedown notice mm. that Nintendo of America send out to them. I think, you know, whenever anything Nintendo gets put on there, I've got a feeling they just automatically send this kind of cease and desist email. Yeah. Um, regardless of what it is. But I've got to say, I mean, you know, because archive.org is kind of, it, it's the biggest effort in the world to preserve this kind of history. And they've yeah. probably so got the, the Nintendo... uh, biggest team of lawyers as well on Archive.org. Well, they, they, even they are saying they don't want to take on Nintendo's legal team. Okay. You know, there's no <laughs> reason that they'd want to do that or, or spend the time and money. Because, I mean, I've got a feeling, you know, Archive.org is a non-profit organisation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's not the, the kind of thing where they're going to waste millions fighting Nintendo in the courts for something they'll probably lose, you know, if, if, if Nintendo's lawyers got on there. But again, it, you just ask the question that, why are they so protective? You know, there's got to be a bit of common sense in there somewhere. You know, it just seems to be a blanket, right, it's got Mario on there, that's got to come off, you know, unless it's on our website kind of thing, which just seems really bizarre, isn't it? And I mean, I I, I kind of get the feeling that Nintendo are getting worse at this as well. Yeah, it feels a little bit like every other week we're mm. either talking about something Nintendo have taken down or, you know, or a, a game that's had to have been changed, you know, the assets are too close, so they've, they've done this, that, and the other to it. Like, it just, it's a very strange situation, considering Nintendo is such a happy, family-orientated company, they, they they do seem a little bit, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't... Aggressive. Hardcore. Yeah, aggressive, <laughs> yeah. That, hardcore, aggressive, yeah, they're good words when it, when it comes to these kind of things, but 
I don't think they'll ever change. I think this will always be yeah. the case with Nintendo. But it's just, like you say, it just seems to be getting more and more ridiculous. It's it's a magazine. It's not even a game. It's mm. not video. It's not footage. Nobody's making any money. But luckily, um, they do say an anonymous person actually made a torrent magnet of it as well, which um, is, is apparently out there. I'm just saying, you know, if you were looking at this article, you might find a link somewhere if you want to check that out. So uh, come but on, Nintendo, in sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> not our show notes obviously but if we happen to link to a website that's got that on that's obviously beyond our control now before we get into our interview this week catching up with the incredible james rolf the angry video game nerd let's just take a quick moment to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor and that is our friends at better help online therapy now obviously at the moment i mean you know the world's been going through so many changes over the last couple of years and you know we often talk about physical health don't we people are always you know we think they're going to the gym getting you know in shape for summer this year as well if you've got you know a headache you'll take a tablet for it you know if you've got problems with your teeth you'll go see a dentist as well but a lot of the time we don't consider just how important our mental health is absolutely and you know i'll always be the one to talk about mental health and be an advocate of mental health and i'm a really big strong believer in talking about mental health and not seeing it as a weakness or anything like that and i'm a real big strong believer in it doesn't have to be a diagnosis for mental health. It doesn't have to be like, you know, I've got this wrong with me or I've got wrong that wrong with me. You can just have bad days. You can just have good days. You can have bad weeks, bad months, bad years. And when these things happen, there is absolutely no shame in reaching out and reaching out to apps like BetterHelp. And I said it before, I'll say it again. If you bought a brand new car and you got told that's the only car you're ever, ever going to have for the rest of your life, you could only ever have this one car, you'd wash it every week, you'd take care of it, you'd get it serviced every year, you'd get, you know, you'd do everything you can to keep it pristine. So why don't we do that with our brains and with our bodies? The only thing that we only get one chance at life and we only get one chance with our mind. So we need to look after ourselves and better help is the perfect way to do that. Especially if, you know, you just want to do it on your phone because there's, there's so many things you can do with it. Yeah, there are, I mean, it's online therapy that offers a video version. Uh, you can do it on the phone as well. There's even live chat sessions with your therapist as well. The thing about it is, I mean, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. You don't even have to put your camera on mm-hmm. if you don't want to. And I think one misconception about therapy is that it's only for rich people. Yeah. And it's really expensive. And this is obviously a lot more affordable than in-person therapy. So you can give it a try. You know, see if online therapy can help lower your stress and help you out. You know, everyone needs it now and then. So... Give it a go, and actually, for using our exclusive link, you will get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So our link is betterhelp.com slash retro, betterhelp.com slash retro, so they know that we sent you, and a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our show. Right, next, we are going to be joined by someone who we've wanted on the show for such a long time, and it's such a good interview as well. Catching up with James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd, next on the Retro Hour podcast. listening to the retro hour podcast and it is time for our favorite bit of the show when we welcome on a very special guest and actually our guest this week is someone who i think we've wanted to talk to since we started doing this podcast like what six years ago now and really the guy you know every youtuber we talk to always mentions our guest this week as being one of their biggest inspirations um i don't want to make you blush or anything but let's welcome you on james rolf how are you doing james <laughs> doing very good thank you i appreciate that yeah, really appreciate you joining us now. Uh, obviously, we need to talk about AVGN and, you know, you know the veteran of YouTube, really, you could say you are. 
But I think it's um, always nice to kind of get a bit of background on our guests. I mean, kind of going back to, you know, uh, James as a kid. I mean, what was your first gaming experience then? Do you remember kind of what initially got you into video games? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a blurry memory, but I remember uh, my grandpa and my cousin introducing me to some games at a very young age. Uh, this was before we had NES. So it was uh, a lot of DOS games, um, a lot of uh, Magnavox Odyssey 2. Nice. Yeah. And uh, Atari, of course, Atari 2600. The Atari, I believe, was my aunt's mm. or my, it could have been my grandpa's. I'm not sure. NES was the first one where I got it as a birthday present, mm. I believe. And I would have been eight at that point. And before then, was there much of a, an arcade scene when where you were growing up? Uh, you know what? I didn't really go to the, the video arcades as often, uh, more when, in my teen years. Mm. So that kind of came later. So I wasn't really in the, you know, in the arcade scene when Pac-Man and Donkey Kong yeah. was going on. I was a little too young for that. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was, I was born on, in 1980. So that, that puts a time stamp on it. <laughs> In terms of like the NES then, was that kind of like how you fell in love with gaming? So you'd played the Atari, you'd played a couple of computer games and maybe seen a bit of arcade. What was it about the NES? Um, first side-scroller, first time where uh, it was just really surprising when the level was over, but the game continued. Like I never mm. really saw a game that lasted as long as Mario. It, it was mm. kind of like an ongoing thing and it was a lot, lot more challenging than any game I played before that. It was it was definitely a you know a, a game changer. I'm guessing you were used to just seeing the the Atari screen, the one screen you get a high score, and then all of a sudden you've got a game with worlds and you know yeah. twenty levels and stuff like that. So no music, there, no pause yeah. button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the light guns and all of that. So um, was there much of a Sega scene? Did you know anybody with a Master System when you got the NES? Yeah, I. I I saw the Genesis first, though, or mm. Mega Drive, but uh, we call it Genesis here. Yeah. But um, I remember when that came out, uh, my next door neighbors had it. Mm. But I also remember I had another neighbor at another time who uh, had the Master System. And it was the, mm. the only person I knew who had one. And I thought that it would be because the Genesis, we just call it Sega. You know, everybody yeah. just called it Sega. It, it's the same here in the UK. Everybody just called it Sega. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, my friend was like, well, I got the Sega Master System. And I'm like, whoa, the Master System. That, mm. That's got to be better than the Sega, right? Because this is the Master System. <laughs> so uh, I played it and I'm like, well, what, what is this? <laughs> it's funny because of exactly the same for me. I, I was born in 89, but my older brother is a similar age to you. And he had a Mega Drive. And when we were growing up, our neighbor had a Master System and we thought it was the better system. Oh, just yeah. because of the name. You know, we were too naive <laughs> with the graphics and stuff. We just assumed it was the next one. So it's really funny. That's the kind of oh, silly wow. story. Yeah. All I, in the branding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it wasn't too big over here. Um, but but I, I hear it was very big in um where was it? Uh I think South America. Mm. It was a lot more popular. Yeah, the master system they still manufacture the master system in Brazil. Um something to do with like taxes and licensing, well, but Oh, that's it. Yeah. 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 But South America and Europe, it was much, 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 much bigger. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine had, um, cause we had the, you know, the master system too, and he had, um, Alex kid in miracle world built into it, mm. but his mum didn't buy many other games. So literally that's the only game that he had for the system, the built in game. And he just played that every weekend oh, yeah. for like years. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this, uh, the friend of mine, it was a missile, 
not missile command, uh, missile defense was uh, mm-hmm. the built-in game on that particular console. I mean, talking about the NES, obviously that was a phenomenon when that came out. I mean, what were kind of your, um, you know, is there any games that stick in your mind as being, you know, must plays and games that really defined you that you, are, you constantly go back to? You know, it's got to be the Contra games. You know, those were huge Castlevania games, but they, they were a little bit too difficult maybe at the time. Like those kind of required a lot of, uh, mm. you know, a lot of hours to, uh, you know, get your skills up. Contra was a little bit more like it was like a fair difficulty, I thought. And um, what early games really got you frustrated? You know, which ones kind of stood out as horrible games and which ones ended end up <laughs> going into the nerd episodes? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'd say it was a, a horrible game, but Ghosts and Goblins was mm. a, a, a difficult and frustrating game. And I remember I couldn't pass the first level when I was a kid or maybe once I got to level two or something, but it was so hard. And never beat it until I was an adult and making the nerd episode. You've done a lot better on that game than I have. I don't think I've still made it past oh, yeah. the first level all these years later. Yeah, it's really tough. What about, you know, when you used to um, get games as a kid then? Was it like a local game shop that you used to go to to get your games? Yeah, there was, um, there was a lot of them. Um, Trying to think of what was the most common. I mean, we had Funko Land. A lot of them were uh, toy stores like... Uh, KB's and Kitty City, Toys R Us, like bigger chains. Mm. But there were small ones. Well, I remember uh, a lot of games would get resold. So if you were in the 16-bit era, if you were buying some 8-bit games that have some small like computer stores that were like just reselling old stuff, and then you could trade stuff into. So I remember various places. And did you uh, trade much in or because obviously you quite famous for keeping a lot of your stuff. Did you ever trade anything on, or was it always just a case of getting your pocket money, getting your allowance and just buying new games? Uh, yeah, I, I did trade in a lot of games mm. around the time. Uh, I think around the time N64 came out. Yeah, I traded in a lot of the old ones or sold them for like a few dollars or whatever. It wasn't mm. very much that you mm. you'd get for them, like maybe 10 bucks or something like that at most. Because all the old the old NES games, I didn't think that people would still be playing them or talking about them. But then I regret later selling mm. a lot of them. I, yeah. I did keep a lot too, though. Like a lot of the games I own, there's probably a handful of them that are still my childhood games. But but I did sell quite a bit too. I was going to ask that actually whether you know your collection now was there ever a stage where you um, kind of got out of retro gaming and then just started to you know buy everything back again which i think yeah i'm definitely guilty of that <laughs> yeah definitely uh it, it was around when i started the nerd episodes uh I started collecting again you know i started getting nostalgic for that stuff around that time i kind of had like a little corner which was like my nes area just like one little corner and um now it's a whole room so <laughs> <laughs> was the one thing that kind of instigated you kind of starting collecting again was a one item i can't remember if it was one item. i think it it might have started with the games i liked but for the episodes it was all about you know the games that uh the games you don't want to remember the ones that were terrible <laughs> um but that made them you know fun on a whole new level to be able to share it with people and have a good laugh and i think james you're often to blame for these you know, awful games, suddenly selling for so much money on eBay. I've been told that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just going back to the kind of Genesis and Mega Drive, how did you feel when the Genesis came along? Did you, did it feel like a challenge to the Nintendo? Like, 
a big challenger to the Nintendo's leadership? Because obviously you were a big Nintendo fanboy. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it was it was um, it was definitely like um, you know it had the really aggressive commercials where they make mm. fun of Nintendo and everything, mm. uh, which was hilarious. They had a uh, uh, there was a documentary that came out recently that was really good. I forget the t- console wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really good. That that sums it up best. But um, I, I remember the commercials and um, kind of being a little bit uh, like like tempted or like oh I want to I want to get a Genesis now. And uh, I, I ended up just waiting for the Super Nintendo, but my next door mm. neighbors had the Genesis. So we used to um, go over each other's houses and play each other's games. So mm. we had like the best of both worlds. But it was co- funny. It was like, a you know, at school, like it was uh, like a friendly competition sort of thing. Like, mm. oh, you're a Sega kid. I'm a Nintendo kid, you know. Like, oh, Genesis is better. Like, oh, oh yeah, well, wait till you see the Super Nintendo. That's going to be better than Genesis. <laughs> my my, my, uh, my friend's dad's brother's got one <laughs> and I've played it. That's usually what we had in the playground. <laughs> then then PlayStation yeah, came along. <laughs> <It was over>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in my school had like a, a distant cousin who owned a Neo Geo, but no one ever saw one. That was like the oh, mythical yeah. system when I was a kid, I remember. It was very mystical. It was, uh, uh, or mythical, yeah, which... Whichever, whichever it was, he said. But um, yeah, I didn't know anybody who had it, but I did always hear of somebody who knew somebody who claimed to have had it. And it was the most expensive console known at the time. Mm. And um, it had to be the best, right? It had to be. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. And um, it was just like what rich Japanese kids had really, wasn't it, from what I heard? Yeah. I don't know if it was circulated a lot around the mm. States. Like, I, don't, I don't remember because I'd never seen one in person until adulthood mm. and um you know now i own one yeah, it's interesting because it really is kind of just like a home arcade sort of yeah yeah the cartridges are as big as the boards yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so far good. the only games i really played on it are fighting games mm, that's, i don't know if that's yeah yeah it's the same in the uk we it was once again people heard of it but it, nobody ever saw it i didn't see one until you know early 20s um you know, and I think it was literally the episode. I can't remember what episode it is, but where in the starting you have the the cartridge and you weigh it in the intro of one of the earlier episodes, and it was like, <laughs> yeah. "What's that? What's that?" And I had to look it up, and it was like, "Oh, it's the Neo Geo." I remember hearing about that. I'd never seen. Oh, it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, a lot of people would ask me, like, "Oh, so do, the, do those really weigh sixty pounds?" I'm like, no, I was pushing on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I loved your video that you did on because um, you've done a few videos on that kind of weird era. You know, kind of after Genesis and Super Nintendo, then we we had stuff like the the Atari Jaguar, yeah, and the 3DO and the Amiga CD32. That now you've done videos on all of those systems. How did you kind of feel about them? You know, when you were a kid, did you see much of them around, or is this stuff that you've kind of discovered in hindsight? These kind of you know flopped systems. Some of them I heard about at the time, and others I didn't. Like the Philips CDI, I never heard of that one until later. But uh, I did hear of the uh, the real 3DO the Panasonic 3DO. So when, uh, when the Sony PlayStation came along, I thought it would just be another one of those. So that's why I, I didn't really expect the PlayStation to, to be such a big deal because I was saving up for the N64. And uh, I had a friend who had a PlayStation and uh, it looked great, but I had a, a long way uh, to go uh, to wait for the N64. And it seemed like in that delay, um, I might have, might as well have gotten a PlayStation at the time, but that's just how it was. Because yeah, remember the N64, it was delayed by, you know, it probably in hindsight, it was only like 18 months, but as a kid, it felt like years. It did. You know, waiting for that machine to come out. 
Yeah, like it probably wasn't actually as long, but it, it felt that way. But uh, I just remember waiting for that when it was called the Ultra 64. Mm. And um, the launch title I was most excited for was Killer Instinct, but that didn't even become a launch title by the time it came out. They had Killer Instinct Gold, the sequel. Uh, I think by that point, PlayStation had already uh, got enough traction and took over. Yeah, in hindsight, I, I, that's just how I sort of missed the whole uh, PlayStation thing. I mean, I played some of it. I played some of the first couple Resident Evils when they came out. I played mm-hmm. Twisted Metal, um, but I didn't play uh, Metal Gear Solid or Final Fantasy VII. Uh, the games that, like the major games that you hear about, just went over my head. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I was um, shortly after the N sixty four. Um, I was busy with college and just didn't really play games as often. Well, then then I started playing them a little more often because I had friends in college. But we would play uh, like we would play GameCube yeah. when that came out. Uh, usually more co op or, or competitive games like one of the Bond games, uh, Nightfire. More like party games we would play. Yeah, yeah drinking games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because you know that whole era as well when you know everything went kind of 3D. That was you know every game had to be made into 3D from like 1995 onwards. What did you feel about that at the time? Then did you kind of think it was you know were you impressed and thought this is going to be the future of gaming? Or because uh, I know a lot a lot of games didn't really do that transition all that well, did they? I mean, famously stuff like you know Bubsy 3D and you know stuff oh, that yeah. was tried to be forced into 3D that was terrible. What what did you think of it when you saw 3D gaming? Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking back, there's a lot of crap, I guess. But but when I uh, at at the time, I remember. Uh, I remember Mario 64 feeling really cool. Like that was really awesome that you could run in a circle and it felt smooth. The joystick on the controller was, you know, was was responsive and it felt, yeah, it felt like the future. So I, I think I was impressed at the time. But I I, uh, I guess fortunately I skipped over Bubsy and a lot of those type of games. Well, you got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you know, over the years you've accumulated a huge gaming collection. Are there any highlights or rare items that you're most proud of in the collection now? You know, off the top of my head, uh, the original Magnavox Odyssey. Mm. Uh, I have it in the box and everything. Every piece is in there. Like, even the factory batteries are in oh, there. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so that one, like, I don't know how hard that is to find, but it, I just know that having that, it's like the the original game console, yeah. like the first Piece one ever. So, Yeah. And obviously now that you do this, you know, for a living... Are you still like an, an avid collector or do you kind of have to do some separation between kind of your work life and personal life? Oh, um, I, I still collect a little bit, not as much because, um, you know, the room's full and, uh, most of the games I was ever looking for, I have now. Mm-hmm. And, um, the only reason now where I would get something else is to, is if it's a specific game needed for an episode. So I kind of just, treated on a case-by-case basis just what do i need for the videos so speaking of videos you were a big home movie maker as a kid how did you get started and what really ignited that flame because of you know you've you've posted over the years so many things from such a young age with you know with the camera home cameras and stuff yeah um i think by accident i think from just being bored or from just messing around it was always in the arts. I think it didn't really matter too much what it was. It just that I had to do something in the arts and entertainment. Mm. So I would draw, I would, uh, 
paint. I would do stuff like that. Then I started, I came to a crossroads where I could go film or animation. And I decided to go film because I found live action was a little bit um, more, more tangible. It was, it was, uh, I enjoyed being around people, I guess, more. The animation, um, I felt like I could do anything with it because animation, the, the possibilities are limitless, but it felt too time consuming, too many long, lonely hours just drawing. And, you know, I, I guess I found film a little more exciting because I get outside and, you know, play with my friends and, and that's what we would do. My friends would come over, we'd make a movie in the backyard. Mm. And uh, sometimes these movies would just come about spontaneously on a weekend. And they're not much to look at now, but they were <laughs> instrumental in getting that sort of practice needed to think fast and like figure out what kind of shots you need to put it together and make some kind of story that sort of makes sense enough, you know? So yeah, that that's where it all started. What kind of setup did you have? I mean, I imagine obviously you started with a video camera, but did you kind of, uh, do you remember what camera it was? And did you expand to like um, VHS editing systems or Genlocks, that kind of thing? How far did you go with it? They were uh, on VHSC. It was the compact size VHS. I think it was a JVC camera. It was my parents' camera. And then I just sort of, you know, would keep borrowing it and eventually it became mine. And then I got another one. I got a, a for Christmas, I got a full size VHS camera. And that was cool because it could shoot longer. I could shoot up to two hours on a tape, which now it's kind of funny to think like, why did I need two hours? But um, the editing was only done on two VCRs. And I would make s- subtle advances throughout the years. I would find a way to do audio dubbing and stuff like that. I went to some uh, summer and Saturday courses at a university where they had uh, proper editing equipment, but it was analog. It was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just a step up from the VCRs, but I, you know, didn't get a lot of time on that. It was sort of, you know, cause you'd be competing with every other student in the class to, you know, to sit down on the machines and edit. But I always wanted my own and uh, never did, never actually got those way too expensive and didn't even know where to get them. But I ended up just, making it work with my two VCRs and got a pretty good VCR that had a flying erase head, they called it, where it had a clean mm. edit. When you hit record, it doesn't have all the the fuzz, all the static. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then uh, finally computers came along, but it was a really slow transition. Uh, like I didn't have my own computer that was capable of editing until uh, much later, uh, well into my college years. You know, it's crazy to think now, you know, how how quickly we can do something in like Final Cut or Premiere or something like that. The yeah. process of doing that VHS to VHS, you know, I don't know how we actually found the effort to do that because it was just so much hassle, wasn't it? It was. It was crazy. Uh, just to think that even to add a title, I actually bought a, um, or I got it for Christmas uh, or whatever. It was a title maker. It was a separate piece of hardware that was just to make titles. You would have to play it in real time. And then you have a title loaded up and you'd fade it in and out, but you'd have to do it while the tape was copying to the other tape. Crazy. And now you could make a title so easily. <laughs> yeah. And if you timed it wrong, you messed the whole thing up. Yeah. You had to go back. <laughs> <You had> to... <laughs> Editing in order. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, imagine trying to make an AVGN episode on a VHS. <laughs> that, that could be an interesting idea for you one day. That, that might could. be a fun episode. It could, yeah. <laughs> It'd be a good challenge to, to go back to it. That that'd be that would really be a trip because those were, oh man, like looking back, that was a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was either that or don't do it at all. So I guess That's you know, it, yeah. that was the only that way. <laughs> well, let's get on to, you know, your most famous character then. Um, where did the idea of AVGN come from then? Because I mean, like, like we said before, you were very early to this kind of retro gaming thing. And I think actually at the time, it wasn't even really called retro gaming. It was more vintage gaming, I remember, was kind of the title <laughs> it was given originally. Oh, yeah. Where did the idea come from to make these videos and the character? Um, it was really just an accident. It was just another fun thing to do. Um, I was just messing around. And um, I guess the ideas really came from college because uh, this was like right after college, but uh, during college was when was the first time I ever heard from anybody who remembered those type of games. So every now and then when we weren't playing, you know, Bond, we would uh, get out one of the old games and just sort of play around. We'd sort of laugh and make fun of them a little bit. And uh, since I realized some people remembered them, I, I made the episodes, but I really thought the episodes would only appeal to uh, my circle of friends. I didn't really think it would go that far. Mm. Um, in fact, YouTube didn't even come out yet. So there still wasn't any real way to circulate them. It, it was the same thing I'd always do. I'd just copy them on VHS tapes and hand them out to friends. And then when YouTube came out, I made another one and it, it started getting some attention. And then I started doing more and more. And then it sort of became like a request basis, you know, oh, you got to do more, you got to do more. And since people were enjoying them and I was enjoying them too, I just kept it going. And at which point did it kind of like hit you that this could kind of become a bit of a career? You know, what what point did you think I'm going to stop working my nine till five and, and do this full time? Because I think it was around 2007 that you ended up on Screw Attack on game trailers, you know, and I think that probably helped catapult the popularity of the nerd what's the kind of story there what what was the transition like yeah so at that time i had been i'd been doing them on youtube for about a year mm. and then um never th- would have thought that you can get money for that um mm. the game trailers contract was the first time i've i was paid to do uh the episodes where they would debut on game trailers b- before they'd go on youtube and um yeah that was really the start of it i was still working uh, another job at the time at that time, I was working a wedding job. I was I was a videographer, oh, yeah. editing, yeah, uh, editing weddings. And uh, sometime in two thousand eight, I think I started doing them less. And eventually, uh, you know, the nerd videos and the DVDs were able to make it so that I can do that uh, full time. Was that a nervous transition? That you know, leaving your job and kind of relying on that oh yeah oh definitely yeah especially uh being self-employed uh not having health benefits anymore um it was it was risking everything yeah and was that around the time the nerd went weekly for a while didn't it on on game trailers and stuff what what was that like was it stressful uh yeah it was uh bi-weekly so it was like two a month yeah two a month uh Oh yeah, it was it was really stressful because I was doing that and I was doing other videos at the same time. There was I was also doing a, I think that you know it's bullshit videos. Yeah. There was uh, Monster, Monster Madness. Madness. Yeah, uh, yeah, movie reviews on Spike. Uh, eventually, Board James for a little while. Like there's all these different shows, but yeah, it was uh, it was like two a month. 
I remember uh, being really sick for like a, a large portion of uh, 2008. Like I was like sick for months and months and months straight. My voice would come and go because I wasn't sleeping much. So I wouldn't want to go back to doing it that way. It was too much. I, I remember, you know, a lot of people saying when, you, when you're self-employed, you get to make your own hours. And I'm like, well, that's great. But what happens when you make all your hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need some separation. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, AVGN, I mean, it's gone on to be, you know, a cultural phenomenon. You know, um, if you talk about any anyone to do with YouTube and video games, your name generally always comes up. And uh, you made the transition to your own movie as well with the AVGN movie. Yeah. What were the challenges of adapting a character from, you know, a YouTube short series, you know, short episodes mm-hmm. to a full feature length movie on the big screen? The first thought was that it would be sort of like a Revenge of the Nerds, really like dumb comedy sort of thing. Um, and we kept the dumb comedy, like, you know, to make it like just really just stupid and funny, you know, <laughs> like a movie that doesn't take itself seriously. But the plot got a lot more complicated because uh, then we started going the, uh, like a National Treasure Da Vinci Code route and um, like sort of like uncovering these conspiracies with the E.T. game. Yeah, I got really, really sucked into the story, like really uh, went deep with it. Uh, it. It was it was a lot of fun to write. It was, you know, just a lot of fun all around. And you got people like, you know, how Scott Warshaw was involved in it as well. You know, the guy, we've had him on this podcast, actually, you know, the guy behind E.T. Oh, great. Yeah. Was that like work, working with him then? And how did you get him involved with it? Oh, he was awesome. Yeah. Um, well, we wrote the the script and we had him in mind because he's kind of similar to um, Leonardo da Vinci and the da Vinci Code, where he would put hidden things in the, uh, you know, in his work because he would put his initials, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like in Yar's Revenge, you could find his initials. So we thought, well, what if he made E.T. as a uh, floor plan of Area 51? Or you can decode it and find the location of the uh, the captive alien, the real alien in Area 51. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went really far with the story. And I, I remember I wanted to have a really good script to show him. Um, so we waited until we had everything written out. But then as the time got closer... I remember getting more and more nervous, like, oh, well, what if he doesn't like it? Because we put all this work into it. Um, so we uh, we showed it to him and, and you know, he liked it, but um, he wanted to scale back the character a bit. So he was originally going to play like the Xander character, mm, right. but he ended up taking more of like a, uh, like a mentor sort of mm. role in there. And it worked out better for the long run. And uh, having him on set was, was amazing. Like it was really... Uh, really kind guy and uh just having him there and the fans there at the same time like just to come out into this random spot in the desert to watch me and Howard you know act and say our lines it was really just a like a magical moment you know I can't I can't even describe it to do it justice I also think it must be quite surreal for him as well, you know, the fact that he's kind of taken it under his wing, this, um, you know, I killed the video games industry kind of thing, hasn't he? And he, he takes it in his stride, but it must be weird for him, I imagine, seeing all these documentaries made about, you know, and, and movies being made about his, uh, you know, biggest failure in his career, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, his, his book, uh, Once Upon Atari, yeah. is really great. It, it goes into all that. So would you want to make another movie? Because I know you're incredibly busy when you're making a nerd movie and doing everything else at the same time as well. 
Oh yeah, um, it depends because uh, you're not asking a nerd sequel. You're just saying another movie, oh, right? Just a movie in general. Yeah, I mean a nerd sequel would be awesome, but just a movie. Oh, yeah, in <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no on the nerd sequel because um, I want to make something different, but mm. uh, definitely uh, something different. I've done a short film uh, a couple of years ago. I did a short film, uh, The Head Returns, which was a sequel to The Head Incident from '99. Mm. Um, so it was kind of like make you know, sort of did the. Uh, the Halloween H2O sort of thing. Like I went back yeah. to the uh, the story, which was fun. So I, but I've, I found that I really love doing short films. Uh, I, I think I might like them more than features mm. because it's more like a shorter uh, Twilight Zone type format. I think it's more condensed because I wrote a feature horror film. To be realistic, it's going to take years and years to film. I mean, mm. it's not as complicated as the nerd movie, but still it's, uh, it's going to, uh, uh, it's going to take over my life for yeah. years and years. And once you start a movie, then you're you're past the point of no return. Like now mm. you just keep on going and going and going until it's finished. And during that time, that's like almost all you're doing is just that movie and it's all you're thinking about. And like, I don't want that right now. I'd rather have something yeah. that I could uh, could make it quicker and, you know, not, not have it overstay its welcome. Mm. And I think that the, the horror feature, like I rewrote it as a short and I think it's better as a short, like as a 30 minute film, something like that. Is that the, and the with the roller coaster in the castle? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's the, the abandoned amusement park one. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm planning to make it as a short mm. once I'm caught up with, uh, you know, some other, cause I have some other videos I'm trying to make too. There's some other like secret projects I'm working on. So, uh, it's, it's, it's in the queue. It'll happen, but just, you had to wait for, you know, COVID to get under control mm. and being able to get out in the world more and things need to be a little more stable, you know, before I make such a big decision to a life changing, you know, uh, project. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, talking about your, um, your videos from AVGN, Jack Tramiel passed away a few years ago. Did you ever oh, hear yes. of the, the rumor you oh. were talking about, about Sword Quest was true then that he had the treasures? I haven't heard a single thing. No. <laughs> Um, and, and it's, it's been a while since his death. Yeah. Mm. Obviously when at first, when he first died, I wasn't going to be like, Oh, well let's find the treasure. You know, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. but uh, <laughs> the premise but, of the second AVGN film. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's, you know, so much time has passed and, uh, I, I haven't heard anything at all. You, you'd think maybe like someone somewhere would have, uh, you know, found something, but I, I guess that was all, I mean, I heard that the treasures were all melted down and that was it. Like mm -hmm. they were all the, uh, the gold was sent back to the mint and, uh, I, I, that's all there was not a very, uh, exciting, um, treasure adventure story, but <laughs> <laughs> having a myth of them still being out there somewhere. Yeah. That makes it much more exciting. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could go with that, that they're just, they're still out there. They're still out there waiting <laughs> to be found. Yeah. So, um, what's the typical process of making a nerd episode and has that changed much over the last 15 years? Um, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, so, it, you know, it starts with the gameplay. Uh, I sit down, play the game, write some notes, basically write all the parts that are frustrating or funny or, or anything interesting whatsoever. And then as I'm doing that, I'm recording the gameplay and then I digest all the footage and start going through it and writing a script. The script, you know, is probably the, the longest part because you 
because just going through the notes and trying to figure out like, well, what kind of flow is this? Like, should I start talking about this and then go on to that? Is this funny? Is that funny? Like, um, once I got it all down, then, then I shoot it, then it goes to editing. Mm. We've had a lot of help with the editing over, especially in the past, like five years or so. Yeah. I still do do some of the editing. Like it's not all outsourced, I guess I should say, but, uh, still a lot of it is me editing. Um, I have a lot of people help edit as well. And um, while they're editing, that means that I can start writing the next one. So that's kind of how the the flow goes. It's a much, it's the most efficient that I've ever had in the whole, you know, career. And it keeps me from, keeps me able to do the creative parts where if there's something like, because before, you know, I would get bogged down uh, working on the color correction on little audio tweaks mm. and trying to clean up the, you know, the audio and get the volume all equalized and all that kind of stuff. It's so refreshing when someone else can take that off your plate and just <laughs> let you, you know, you know, work on the fun part, you know? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you get a bit, you know, obsessed with it. Can't you like, Oh, it's need to change it a little bit more or yeah, you know, it can, before you know, you spent two hours doing the color correction and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And even then, sometimes I have a lot of notes about it where I'm like, oh, can you, can you, you know, make this part look a little more like nighttime or, you know, um, the last one I had uh, on the last Ninja, the most recent episode, there were parts where the color correction was meant to look bad on purpose um, Mm. because I was recreating an old episode, like the the look and feel of an old episode from 2006. I was going to say you captured the room the background really well then <laughs> with, with oh, that yeah. one because it did and I, I i i mean i'm glad you cleared that up for me i i, I was really studying it like <laughs> did he film this 15 years ago <laughs> like i really could some planning it so, yeah, yeah i was gonna say that's some planning that is there yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it, it was a fun challenge just try to mm. make it look as close as possible mm. i used the exact same microphones that i used back then oh wow um yeah uh, it, it was. I just want to see how far I could go with it. Some dedication. And uh, was there any abandoned episodes? Like any episodes you just couldn't make make work? The only ones I remember, I, I think we released as DVD bonus mm. uh, episodes. I think one was Secret Scout. That's mm. the only one I can remember off the top of my head. Um, I don't think we ever like finished it. It was kind of just like like a game that my friend Mike and I would play, and we just recorded it, and went we. We're like, okay, well, this could maybe be an episode. Because mm. I have, uh, you know, my friends help me a lot with yeah. uh, uh, picking out games. Like, they'll, you know, Mike will suggest the game. He suggested Last Ninja to me. He was like, hey, this game's really bad. You should check it out. And I, <laughs> I did. And it was like, oh, wow, you're not kidding. This game is might be the worst NES game I've ever played. Did you ever get any um, bad games for like Christmas or birthday as a kid? You know, I think I lucked out with a lot of that. I think m- the worst game I can recall off the top of my head was Ghostbusters on NES. Which just because it was Ghostbusters, everyone had to have it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it was one of those where usually the movie games weren't weren't so good. What are some of your personal favorite nerd episodes? In recent memory, like I'll go recent and I'll go classic. Mm. I think uh, recent um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas Mm. and uh, Majora's Mask. Yeah. Um, those were two really big ones cause they were a, a little more story driven and, mm. and there was like some, you know, sort of like sentimental content to both of those. Like there was like, a, like some, you know, some sort of part where I'm really 
even though it's like a joke and it's like a, you know, it's just sort of like a, just meant to be a funny video. It's it also has some, some genuine material in, in those. Yeah. And then like the, the older ones, I remember Rob the Robot, I think is probably my favorite uh, old one because it had a mm. story to it. Mm. And uh, I remember the Crazy Castle one, as far as slapstick goes, yeah. was, well, that's a hard one to beat. Oh, well, well and uh, the Sega Activator one with uh, with, with Nathan Barnett. Yeah, yeah Keith. Keith. Nathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's always fun to break a lot of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say birthday blowout as well. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Plumbers Don't Wear Ties, I think, was uh, cause I'd never really seen that game before. And oh, that yeah. Was a very eye opening <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah, I remember that episode at the time I was making it. I wasn't so sure if it was a good episode or not because I didn't really have much to add to the game. Like mm. my commentary on it was just like, you know, look at this because what do you say about this? Look at this insane, crazy game. But I guess it's just just that, like just that the game sort of wrote the episode itself. It, mm-hmm. it was like, that's all you need. Because people would always tell me that they love that episode. So I, I think that's maybe what it is, is just that because the game was so crazy and it's and the fact that I have such a lack of words for it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it speaks for itself a bit. Doesn't yeah. It? You know, your Majora's Mask one as well, that was interesting because I remember, mm-hmm. you know, when you released that episode, I remember thinking, oh, he's going to get it for, you know, slate in that game. And then I watched yeah. it and actually you made a load of good points in there. And I think a lot of people in the comments were like, actually, now you mention it, you know, you're right about a lot of stuff in there. Was that kind of an episode? Did you feel a bit, you know, doing a, a nerd episode, kind of putting down a Zelda game? Was that a bit kind of uh, outrageous in some ways, do you think? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean that—that's always what made them. Uh, you know what I think made the episodes interesting. Like going all the way back to Ninja Turtles, that game was the number one top uh, voted game in uh, Nintendo Power for a while. I think for maybe a year or so. I don't know. And uh, I was one of the first people I think publicly to bring up all the bad points about it mm-hmm. um, to that level. I even remember uh, um, Zelda, Zelda Two. Actually, mm-hmm. that, like that one kind of seems like you know some people like it, some people don't. Um, so it's always good to bring about good and bad points. It's interesting because Majora's Mask. When I saw that, I, it, it's like my favorite Zelda game, and I adore Zelda. And it's interesting because when I watched that video and I first saw you kind of like obviously joking but bashing on it, it actually mm-hmm. brought back memories because of I think I was about twelve or thirteen when that game came out, and I actually remember getting upset that it had the time limit on it before I understood how the time limit worked and that you could, you know, revert, you know, go back to the start and stuff. And I remember my mom saying, how is it like on Christmas day? And I remember like holding back tears. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Kind of thing. But you know, at the time I just didn't understand the mechanics. So, you know, it's, it's great that you kind of pointed it out. Oh yeah. (laughs) Cause it was, it was actually my first time playing it all the way through. Mm. Um, I played a little bit before, but not enough to get a sense of the game. So it, it was really like a bucket list game for me because I heard a lot about it before I played it. And I heard good and bad things. Like I've heard a lot of people say it was their favorite Zelda game. Yeah. And then I've also heard a lot of people say like, well, you know, it, it's interesting. It's it's different. It's definitely different. Mm. And I was like, well, I need I need to, you know, see this for myself. And I really love the aesthetic of it with the moon yeah. and everything. So it even appealed to me already before, like it already looked like a game, like I know I'm going to enjoy this and I'm sure there's going to be things about it that are going to frustrate me, but 
overall, I think this is going to be a a good experience. Yeah. So one of the questions I had to ask, because I've always wondered this, you've had some huge guests on AVGN, Lloyd Kaufman, Macaulay Culkin, Gilbert Gottfried. How oh, yeah. did this happen? How did that come about? What's the story there? Like the Macaulay Culkin one blows my mind. Um, each one uh, was a different case. The, the the way we went about meeting them was was different each time. Um, Macaulay Culkin was one that came to me. So oh, that wow. was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Gilbert, we went to Gilbert. Um, we we had access to him, so we we asked him if he wanted to do it, and he did it. Uh, Lloyd, we, we've uh, I think we, wait, did we do the movie cameo before that, or or I think we shot the movie cameo first. Now I'm starting to forget. Mm. Macaulay Culkin though was a fan, and he was a mm. fan for a while too. And uh, you know, one day the idea came up, like if we do a, a Home Alone episode. And at first, I thought like, well, like is he into this? Like is he? Or is he kind of tired of hearing about Home Alone all the time? Like I wasn't sure, um, and it does seem like it's a rare case when he does something. So I felt really honored that he yeah. wanted to come here and, uh, you know, go as far to reenact the trap scene and everything. Mm. You know, I just didn't know. I was like, "Hey, is this too cliche or whatever?" And he's like, "No, no, no." Like he he really uh, enjoyed being in the episode, and and a lot of the the dialogue in it uh, we ad libbed. Yeah. Yeah. And and did you hang out with him for a couple of days? Because you did a um, James and Mike Monday with him as well, didn't you? The page master and stuff like, or was it all just he came for the day? Oh, we did. Yeah. Uh, it was a few days. Yeah. Um, we did the the page master and then the rental review. But yeah, no, it, being out in public with him was really fun because <laughs> just to see how, uh, what it's like when someone approaches him. Yeah. Uh, they'll come, they'll recognize him and they'll say like, hey, are are you... Are are you? And he goes, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like just to see how he jokes around and messes with people yeah. like that. It's so funny. It's totally a different, you know, kind of style uh, to just, you know, make, make a funny joke, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He seemed a really down to earth guy as well. And uh, you could tell he was having so much fun when you, when you did the episode with him. So it was nice to see that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, you've done a lot of spin-off shows. You mentioned, you know, Board James, um, you know, what's BS, rental reviews. Have you got any plans to do anything else you can talk about then or anything that's coming up on the channel that we should look out for that you can mention? Well, I, I'm looking forward to getting on a plane and going somewhere at some point. <laughs> um, I haven't been uh, haven't been on a plane in like two years. Uh, I actually am finally going to do a family trip, though, soon. So that'll be my oh. first, uh, take the children. But some of uh there's certain projects that I want to do that involve flying, and hopefully I'll be able to do that soon they're also like expensive, you know sometimes yeah. it's like flying is expensive and and everything added to it uh but I have some on location videos I want to do videos that won't ever make uh revenue back like you know they won't um reimburse themselves, but still it's like the point of doing it is just for fun like i I want to do it just because I want to do it. Um, so hopefully some of those will happen soon. There's a, you know, I'm working on recording a, a music album of cover songs. Is that with Rex Viper? Yeah. 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 Um, so we're doing that. Got a bunch of stuff going on. Um, just juggling a bunch of things, but I'm just enjoying it. Just, uh, you know, one day I'm working on one thing and then the next day I'm working on something else. I just, I just love doing it all, especially, you know, the, the way like, you know, the past couple of years have been, it's just not been normal, you know? So it's yeah. any type of escape, any type of entertainment. 
it's different now. It's like now it's you're trying to do this type of thing to get your mind off and get other people's minds off of uh, you know bad stuff in the world. And yeah, so it's like I, I think I enjoy this more than ever now. Yeah, 100%. Well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure coming on. Thank you so much for uh, reminiscing with us and uh, being so open and chatting about your channel and everything. It's been incredible talking to you. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks so much. 